Good morning, Journey Church again, and uh, happy Father's Day to those to whom it applies. Um, it is an awesome day for dads and families, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about families today, and uh, so please uh, um, prepare for that as we study in the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, when you study the book, uh, a book through the book of the Bible, and you just kind of take it verse by verse or chapter by chapter, uh, you run into a lot of topics that you don't normally talk about. And uh, obviously, uh, we began this study a few weeks ago on 1 Corinthians. And so um, uh, today, this topic has fallen a little bit unusual, maybe for Father's Day, but maybe it's a very relevant one as well. Um, and that is on uh, divorce. Um, you know, two weeks ago, we talked about how the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s changed our country. Uh, the book of Corinthians, uh, because the city, there was a lot of sexual immorality. Um, Paul talked a lot about marriage and uh, talks about divorce. He talks about immorality, a lot of different things in the book. Uh, but uh, we talked about how the sexual revolution kind of released uh, this movement in our country uh, that kind of brought us to where we are today uh, about abortion and about um, um, marriage equality and, and everything else that we're, that we're dealing with. But there's one thing that probably changed our culture more than anything as a result of the sexual revolution, that is divorce. In the 1970s, the divorce rate doubled, literally in about a 10-year period, the divorce rate doubled, fueled, no doubt, by the concept of the no-fault divorce. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Ronald Reagan introduced the idea. He was uh, currently the governor of uh, California, and uh, he introduced the idea of no-fault divorce, and he later admitted it was probably the worst mistake of his political life. Uh, before that, most states require certain grounds in order for someone to be divorced, like cruelty, desertion, or adultery. And the society to that point had reluctantly acknowledged divorce, but it didn't really approve of it until about this time, and slowly the opinion began to change around the country uh, as divorce became much more common. And now today, you probably know all 50 states accept no-fault divorce, and, uh, and as it became more common, in fact, initially it was thought, well, this must be probably a good thing. I mean, you know, couples who are miserable, who obviously have made a mistake in choosing their, ma their spouse, married the wrong person, it would be a way to rectify that problem easily. And the biggest complication seemed to be the most obvious, and that would be children of divorce. But they thought, surely, you know what, the kids will get over it. The kids are resilient, right? That's what we hear. And it's hard on them to see their parents fight. So it would be the best thing for everybody uh, if they just divorce. But that theory was proven to be wrong uh, here several decades later. In her book, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, Judith Wallenstein writes this, divorce is a life-transforming experience. After divorce, childhood is different. Adolescence is different. Adulthood with the decision to marry or not and have children or not is different. Whether the final outcome is good or bad, the whole trajectory of an individual's life is profoundly altered by the divorce experience. You know, there are parenting agreements and custody disputes and two homes and perhaps new families and new siblings and emotional stress and financial obligations, implications, and family instability. And obviously, when there are children of divorce, it's never over. It is never over. I think sometimes that people go into this and they think, well, it'll soon be over, it'll soon be better. But in many cases, they realize it is really never over because you're always in each other's life, 
oftentimes even as enemies. At one point, you seem to be together, but now it's very obvious that no longer are you. Now, what I'm telling you is not news you've never heard about or thought about, because many of you probably know this firsthand as children of divorce, or maybe you know this because you've been through the the trauma of divorce yourself. And you know, this is one of those topics that whenever I speak on this, it's always difficult because I understand that there are people who are dealing with divorce, who've been through a divorce and, and experienced that. And uh, so the last thing I want to do is to add to your stress or your guilt or embarrassment. But on the other hand, I also want to provide a deterrent for those that maybe say, well, would, wouldn't it be better? Maybe it would be no big deal for everybody. You know, maybe we ought to, ought to think about this. So it's, it's kind of a difficult subject. And I want to strike the balance, not, not just not to hurt feelings, but more importantly, to be scripturally accurate. And our scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it deals with that specifically. And so we're going to talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Let me also say that every one of us are sinners. Every one of us are. And we've all sinned in some way in our marriages. On that day that we took that vow, we fully intended to do all those things we said, no doubt. You know, all those things we vow, better for worse, richer for poorer, you know, all those things. But the problem is in our brokenness and our sin, we have probably failed our spouse multiple times and been failed as well. And if we're innocent in some of these things, we may become the victim of somebody else's sins. And realistically, some sins have greater and longer impact than other sins, and divorce is one of those sins. But every sin that we're going to talk about is forgivable, and Jesus gives us the best advice. When he was confronted with sin, even sin like adultery, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. So what we find in the scripture is we find healing, we find hope, but we also find the admonition, do not do that. Do not go into that. If you have not been, if you have been, you can be forgiven, but go and sin no more. So with that thought, let's begin our scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else she must be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So let's take a few moments and start where it all begins with marriage. Let's talk about marriage. God invented marriage. And God gave it as a gift to the first man and woman. I want you to think for a moment what it would have been like if God had not given them marriage, this gift of marriage. You would have a man and a woman who kind of coexisted on the earth, and then that would pretty much be the end of it, wouldn't it? We wouldn't be here today. So God gave a gift, and the result of that is that we all, millions and billions of people, inhabit the earth now because of God's gift of marriage to mankind. But also with every gift, there also are pros and cons, right? And so probably every marriage that I know of has experienced the joy and the heartbreak and the hurt within marriage. Let's look at marriage itself. God intended, first of all, God intended marriage to be one man and one woman for a lifetime. While our world and our culture has tried and has redefined in many ways marriage, to the point that it isn't even what God had in mind, God's concept of marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime. That was the plan. It still is his plan and desire. 
Secondly, marriage creates us a, um, a oneness that God does not intend to be broken. God does not intend for this to be broken. Genesis chapter two says, the man and the woman became one flesh. They became one. It's interesting, the word that's used here for their oneness is the word ikad. And that word is also used to describe the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Not the same as marriage, obviously, but the word to describe the Trinity and the word that describes the oneness in marriage are the same word. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, financially, they even share the same name. They become one. They become one. And if you're not ready to do that, then you probably should not get married. That would be my advice to a couple. If you're not willing to totally become one with another person in every way, do not get married. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So while civil marriage and the service joins people together, it's more than a piece of paper. It's more than, you know, a service. It's more than a celebration. It is God speaking into two people's lives and God saying, now you're no longer two, now you're one, and no one should separate this oneness. The third thing about marriage is that marriage is a covenant and not a contract, not a contract. You know, in a contract, if we, you and I were to write a contract, I would agree to do this and you would agree to do that. And if either one of us break that contract or don't fulfill our commitment, then the contract is null and void and we're pretty much done and we go our separate ways. A covenant is different and it's demonstrated by God when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. In other words, we make these promises to God and we know the promises we've made to God that we've broken some of those. They call that sin. And we all are guilty of sin. But God's in a relationship with us and God says, I will never leave you. You may leave me. And we have that freedom to do so. But God says, I will never leave or forsake you. So marriage is to be a covenant. A covenant marriage says, even if you don't make me happy, I am staying here because I am devoted and committed to you. God says your marriage is a covenant. God and others witness our vows. And every year we celebrate our anniversaries to remind ourselves of the covenant relationship that we're in, that we entered into. So it is a covenant. Fourthly, in a covenant relationship, the husband is to lead and provide. The husband is to lead and provide. First Timothy chapter five says, if a man does not provide for the needs of his family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the pattern was that a man and his wife would leave their parents, leave their provision, leave their oversight, establish himself as a family, and the man would take care of the family that God had blessed him with. And the man is to take the lead in this, and he is the head of the family. He is provide and lead his family physically, financially, and spiritually. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now you see how kind of we, in our culture, have got this all mixed up because culture says that there is no leadership in the family. Culture says that everybody's equal, everybody does their own thing, but the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife and it even compares it to Christ being the head of the church. Now, what does that mean to be the head? Uh, being the head doesn't mean that he's the boss or the bully or the king of the family, but what it means is that he is the servant leader who adores his, 
A lot of amens on that for some reason. Hey, you know what? If you get, agree with that, you got to agree with everything, all right? So don't just pick and, pick and choose things you like. But it does mean he is the servant who adores his wife and children, and he voluntarily goes and provides for their well-being. The head of the family, he, he leads the family, and if something goes wrong, he is responsible even if it isn't his fault. And a lot of men bail out of the leadership role. They want to be the head, but they don't want to be the one responsible. And the example we have is of Jesus who took responsibility for our sins, even though they weren't his fault. Think of that, that relationship. He stepped in when there was a need and he led and he sacrificed and he gave and he loved. And that's what we get to experience the blessing of today. So that is God's perfect plan. And it's oftentimes difficult to live out, isn't it? It sounds easy, it sounds great, but it doesn't always play out like that in our culture today. In fact, a lot of people bail out on the plan and a lot of people refuse to get married and just live together. And both of those are sins that are contrary to the plan that God gave for us and are ways to try to get around God's plan. Living together is outside of God's plan for us if you're not married. Now we're not commanded to marry. In fact, the scripture we began says that, that each of us have a gift. And last week, Kyle talked about the gift of singleness. He said he didn't have that gift. He tried to, but he didn't have the gift. And maybe you're saying, well, I don't have that gift either, and I want to get married. Or maybe you say, I do have that gift, and I'm perfectly fine being single. That's all right, too. We're not commanded to marry, but if a person cannot commit to to celibacy, they, they need to get married. And, and in fact, Paul says, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says that there is a way to express our passion and our desire for intimacy, sexual intimacy, and that is within marriage. Better to marry than to burn with passion. So now that's pretty, covered, pretty much covers marriage in a, in a nutshell, all right? Sounds simple, doesn't it? All right, let's take a few minutes though to talk about divorce because that's where the scripture moves us next. Well, you need to first of all know about divorce that God hates it. God hates it. Clearly, the Bible says that Malachi chapter two says that. And so does about everybody I know who's ever experienced it. It's not a good thing. Now, let me emphasize that God does not hate people who have been divorced. God does not hate people who have been divorced. He hates what divorce does in people and to people and what it does to his plan for marriage. Because divorce is painful, it's heartbreaking, it's expensive, and it really does change the course of your life and almost everybody who's involved in it. Divorce was never, ever God's plan, but Jesus said that God allowed divorce, he permitted divorce because of the hardness of the people's hearts. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that the people, especially in Old Testament times, Moses' day, they were abandoning their wives. It was a male-dominated society, and so a man would abandon his wife, and he would basically kick her out of the house, and then he would get remarried, but there's, the wife could not get remarried because she didn't have the freedom to do so, and so she would become homeless and a beggar and often starve. So, so God said, because of your hard hearts and your sin, I'm going to permit divorce so that there at least can be an end to separation. The wife could get, woman could get remarried and have someone to care for them. So divorce, while it was never God's plan, it was permitted by God, then it prematurely ends marriage, but it was never ever what God wanted. 
Now, let me go on to say, though, that there are some legitimate reasons that a marriage can end. There are some legitimate reasons. First of all, it's pretty obvious, that's death. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So the Bible says that death obviously severs the marriage vows, and that's pretty obvious because in the wedding vows, we say what? Till death do us part. That's pretty obvious that's going to happen. Now, I do want to emphasize here that you can't kill your spouse Because that breaks one of the Ten Commandments, pretty obviously. All right, so we got to see how everything works together here. And you can't say, well, that's an easy way out. So um, that has to be on God's part. I'll leave that there, all right? But death, obviously, uh, does end a marriage. The second thing, legitimately, is adultery. In the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, they killed you. So divorce really wasn't necessary. It really wasn't a big deal back then because you got killed if you commit adultery. Adultery is sex outside of marriage, and it obviously breaks the oneness of marriage. It severs the oneness that was created there and also the covenant relationship. And it's also interesting that adultery is the only reason that Jesus gave for divorce. It's what it says. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So as damaging as adultery is, let me say this, it is an allowance for divorce, not a requirement for divorce. And I hope that makes sense. It's an allowance, but not a requirement. Even when adultery is committed, a couple can, through God's grace and through God's power, learn how to forgive and begin to rebuild their marriage. And that would obviously be the best scenario. The reality is that God has forgiven us all so much that we ought to be able to forgive one another. And when there is repentance, and there's change, the victim is often, can oftentimes forgive the sin of adultery. However, if the spouse is unrepentant and continues in sexual immorality, then divorce may be the only option. And I say that seriously because marriage cannot be mocked, and it should not be undermined by allowing what the world today calls an open marriage. So that is a mockery of marriage and should never, ever be allowed or permitted uh, or accepted. The third reason legitimately is abandonment of a, of a non-Christian spouse. And the Bible here uh, teaches that a believer should not marry an unbeliever, that they would be unequally yoked. Marriage is not where you practice evangelism. And I think couples need to think about, or individuals need to think about this before they begin, before they start to date, who they might eventually marry. You probably, I don't believe, should ever date anyone that you would say you would never marry. But marriage is not where you practice evangelism. You say, well, they believe in God. Well, so does the devil, but you're not going to marry the devil, all right? And you may find out that you married someone that's closer to the devil than you thought they were eventually down the road. So dating needs to be a place that you prepare for marriage, obviously, and don't date someone that you wouldn't marry. But maybe an a believer does marry a non-believer, or maybe that person becomes a believer after they're married. What do you do then? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, it says, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer, he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and his unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So the best scenario, obviously, is when two believers marry, commit to having a Christian marriage, find a church, commit to raise their family there, and grow together in Christian marriage. But that doesn't always happen. That's not the ideal, right? I mean, that's the ideal, but that's not the reality. Oftentimes, a couple are not on the same page spiritually. So what, what should they do? Paul says a Christian should not seek to divorce their unbelieving spouse. Instead, they should love them. They should serve them. They should pray that they come a believer. First Peter chapter three, Peter says, wives in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, husbands in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. So the Bible is very clear about that. The reality is that you will have the greatest influence on your spouse more than anybody else in your life. You will help them see Jesus. You will help them um, through your love and your kindness realize what it means to live the Christian life. And your life and example provides an influence in the family, not just the example, but an influence that permeates the family. And Paul says that it sanctifies or makes holy your spouse and children. So do not be discouraged if you are married to someone who is not a believer, not a strong believer. Don't be discouraged. Don't beat them up with the Bible. Uh, don't give them a book. Uh, don't give them this message or any other message and say, you got to listen to this. Uh, that's what people tend to do in desperation. Be Jesus to them and let your witness shine in their life. goes on to say, but if the unbeliever leaves, however, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? You know, a marriage can be held together by loyalty to God or by self-interest, but it can't be held together by force. You can't make somebody stay in your life. And if your unbelieving spouse is threatening you with leaving, then Paul says you let them go. If your spouse is supposed to be a believer, but they won't commit to the marriage, they won't commit to making it better, they're unfaithful, or they refuse to respond to the church's encouragement and discipline, and they want to leave you, then you can't hold them there because they're now acting as an unbeliever and the guilt is on them. Paul says, when an unbeliever leaves, the innocent party is no longer bound, which seems to imply that they could remarry. Now, those are the only three reasons, valid reasons, the Bible gives for divorce and remarriage. And I know what you're thinking. I'm going to get there, all right? And that honestly implies that most divorces are not biblical, not valid biblically. And I've seen a lot of cases, though, where you would think divorce would be the obvious option here, where the marriage was rocky and they might not have a lot of hope for it to improve and, uh, and to become what they would like for it to be, but both are committed to the Lord, to their vows, to their families, so they stay together. And, and in, in most cases, they come to love each other again, and they're grateful they didn't divorce. They realize, wow, that was not the right option, not the best option for us. Now, the question that you're, you're thinking about is what about abuse? What does the Bible say about abuse? Does a person have to stay in an abusive marriage? Obviously, the answer is no. Obviously, no. Um, <clears throat> you know, we spent several weeks hearing about a couple who abused each other, right? Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I mean, every headline, every headline every day was about the trial 
and how this couple abused themselves. It was not just um, him abusing her. I think he probably was, but her abusing him. And uh, so obviously the jury agreed that she had abused him and gave him, what, $10 million or something like that. So it happens on both sides. But many times pride keeps men from reporting it. Money sometimes can bring out, override the pride, right? But the Bible speaks about the way that we ought to treat our spouse. Treat them gently, with kindness, should never take advantage of them or intimidate or harm them. No man or woman should stay in an abusive relationship. That is not honoring to God, nor is it to marriage. Not to say that they should divorce, but that abuse should be called out. Counseling and accountability should be called up. I think sometimes this is where the church might need to be stepped, called in and stepped in and, and help provide that accountability and direction and maybe even some measure of discipline that we talked about a few weeks ago. And it may lead to separation until the abuse, uh, abuser repents and changes. Obviously, in many cases, the abuser will abandon the marriage or else have a relationship outside that may end the marriage. But reconciliation can only come when there's healing and safety. You know, in our easy divorce culture today, divorce is oftentimes the first thing that people think about. And it begins to be thrown out, begins to be considered. You know, it's kind of like the nuclear option that you start, you, you, you play on day one. And it may happen down the road, but it's not where it ought to begin. People can change. If there is a willingness, God can change people. Healing can come in marriages. I've seen it happen many, many times. And I've seen God take some of the worst messes, and God can bring beauty and healing out of that. And that includes unfaithfulness, abuse, addiction, because God is greater and bigger than all of those things. He's bigger than all of that. If people will open their hearts and lives to let him come in and take control of the situation and put their marriage in his hands. And that's why every successful marriage is going to be a Christian marriage, I believe. And that's why it's so important for both spouses to be the believers. That's why the Bible says we should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And it's also why you gotta give God some time and some space to change your marriage or change your spouse even and pray for them. I think most divorces seem to happen to couples who claim to be incompatible. Incompatibility is probably the number one reason for divorce anymore. But let me just say this, every marriage is a combination of two sin, uh, sinful people, two sinners who want their own way, so no doubt you're incompatible. We're incompatible with anyone until we make ourselves more compliant to the marriage. Marriage is in fact the best way to learn that you are selfish, egotistical, and arrogant. You may not know that till you get married and you'll find out pretty quick, right? And not only that, but opposites attract. You're, you didn't marry a mirror of yourself, more than likely. So maybe God wants to fill whatever is missing in your life with your spouse. What you don't have, God put you together. Maybe you wonder why sometime, but he did that. Maybe your spouse is sanctifying you because God's goal for marriage is not always happiness, but it is always holiness. Did you notice how many times it talked about that we may sanctify our spouse and our children? We come to know the Lord because God is using us. We are only compatible with each other when we're humble, we're kind, gentle, thoughtful, and serving each other. And marriages with conflict are marriages where both people are not loving each other in this way. Well, let, me, let me wrap this up by sharing some hope. I began this by kind of a downer to give you the view of our culture today. 
But in spite of the dismal news on divorce and the damage it does, there is hope. The Bible warns us that when we depart from the plan that God has for us, that we're going to suffer, but it doesn't have to be terminal. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I want you to know that. And if you're feeling a little bit beat up today, I hope that you haven't, but we're just trying to take the scripture and what it says. It is not the unpardonable sin. Even if you've made mistakes in the past, even if you caused a divorce, it was all on you. God is faithful to forgive and restore. God is a healer of our brokenness. The ideal after divorce would be reconciliation and remarriage. But if that's not possible, then we can be restored in our relationship with Christ. And so if you're hurting and kind of smart in this area, I would encourage you to go to him with confession and repentance, to seek his forgiveness and ask for his help in being the husband or wife or maybe the single person that God is calling you to be right now. You know, there is no doubt that there is a lot of pain in this topic. And while we may laugh at some aspects, in in many cases, it really isn't funny at all. And there's a lot of brokenness and a lot of hurt. But let me just tell you and remind you that we can be healed and restored because of what Jesus did for us. He was broken for us. He gave his life down so that we might be healed. And there is no brokenness that he cannot heal. There's no hurt. There's no, there's no grief. There's no suffering that he can't heal through his power. And that's the hope of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to preach, that Jesus was crucified. He is raised to life again. He is real, and he helps provide real solutions in our life. And so that would be my prayer and my hope for you. You know, I'm going to be up front. I'm going to ask Zach, if he would, to step up as well. If you wanted someone to pray with you or to talk to you about something, or maybe you want to know more about this Jesus, if you're not a believer who does this healing and gives this hope, then we'd love to schedule a time to sit down and talk with you. But we're available to pray. If you want to come up and just spend some time in prayer, it doesn't have to be about divorce or anything else, whatever God may be doing in your life, and just the fact that God loves you. Maybe you want to come up and spend some time in prayer. We're going to offer this time for you just now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and Lord, we worship you. God, we know that, that in our brokenness, in our sin, or our hurt, whatever that situation may be, that God, you run to us, that you care about what we're dealing with. And there's nothing outside of your love and your care and your ability to heal and restore. So God, I pray today for healing for those who have experienced this, those who have been the children of divorce or victims or perhaps even the instigator. God, we know that while this is sin that has long-term repercussions sometimes, that God, it's not one that is beyond your power to forgive, to restore, and heal. And so we come to you as the great physician and counselor for your healing, your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.